So, Dale, I don't know how much you know about therapy, but it usually starts by you telling me a little something about yourself. I thought there'd be couches and Kleenex and shit. Look at me, son. It's not your fault. Do you want to talk about some of those feelings? I love you. Obviously, you don't know me. So how's this supposed to work? You sit, I sit, we talk. Hi, I'm Dr. Sam. And I'm Dr. Fran. Welcome to Freudian Scripts. The podcast where we put your favorite TV shows and movies on the hypothetical couch to take a deeper dive into the way psychology is portrayed. We analyze the way therapy looks in entertainment, discuss the way psychological diagnoses are portrayed, and break down other psychological themes seen on our screens. Welcome to a very special mini-sode. Today we are joined by Dr. Delos Reyes, who you may remember joined us to talk about the Marvel Cinematic Universe last week. Today we have a special listener question and answer session with Dr. Delos Reyes. He is a professor of psychology at the University of Maryland at College Park, and he's also the author of the recent book, The Early Career Researcher's Toolbox. He is clearly really passionate and knowledgeable about early career <laughs> development, so we thought it would be great to have him on to answer some listener questions from aspiring psychologists and researchers. So thank you and welcome, Dr. Delos Reyes. Great to be back. Thanks so much for having me. We're so excited to have you back and have additional opportunities to pick your brain. Um, we want to thank all the listeners who submitted such great questions to us and Dr. Delos Reyes on Twitter. So be sure to follow us on social media for other ways to participate in future episodes. So the first question for you, Dr. Delos Reyes, regarding graduate school, should you apply to every school you're interested in or do you have a targeted attack? And then a follow-up to that, what is the work balance and kind of workload like compared to that of undergraduate work? The answer to the second question uh, helps with answering the first. So I'm going to start, the, I'm going to start the, the, with, with that second question. Perfect. Work in graduate school, uh, if it looks anything like the relationship between Peter Parker and Tony Stark, what that tells you is, for one thing, classes – are useful. You're going to learn some things in classes, but 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 there's nothing more important than that mentoring relationship, hands down. Uh, you know the other metaphor I often use, the expensive mixing metaphors. Think back to uh, you know high school when you had like a really bad argument with one of your parents, and like you ra you ran to your room and you threw yourself on the bed. It's like oh, I wish I could pick my own family. Now's your chance. <laughs> this, this that's what grad school is. It's basically picking the you know your research mom and or dad. Uh, that that and they're gonna follow you like regular your regular family gonna follow your career forever. Like th this person's gonna be in your life for for the foreseeable future. And so, what makes under undergrad work so much different than graduate work is is that it's it's like taking a class with one person for years, and and and, the, and that once the class is over, it doesn't end. Like like uh you know so 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 that 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 person. You can still make grad training work really well if if, if that if that uh, if that person isn't the right, isn't the right fit for you, uh, you know. But uh, that's what makes it, and that's why when you apply to grad school, the plan of attack is who's going to look after me, like who among within these grad programs. It's all these faculty among these faculty. What evidence do I have that this person is gonna is gonna take care of me, is gonna look after me, and is gonna look after my career. 
I will say I wish someone had given me that advice when I was applying to graduate school. You know, I was not aware of the importance of the mentor relationship that you would have in graduate school. Luckily, I will say things worked out very well for me, you know, with some shifts and changes. And I ended up with a fabulous mentor who was a great fit. Um, But I do think that that's really important to know when you are looking at graduate schools and the mentors that you'll be working with. It's it's a very important piece of that. Mm -hmm. And even to the point that a fit personality wise or looking for someone who's going to, you know, be looking out for you might even be more important sometimes than finding someone who is an exact match research wise. Because if you only have one, just that research fit, but it's not a good personality fit and they're not someone who's looking out for you and being supportive, then you might not be getting as much out of that mentoring relationship. I completely agree. I think that, 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 uh, that, if you're going to say one of them is a necessary condition, it's, it's that, it's that relationship. And, and it, you know, what you'll notice with a lot of people's careers is that you'll see a lot of researchers. I'm using research as an example. A lot of researchers where if you telescope out to their work 20 years after they started and you go back to the, to their origins, their origin story, they don't look the same. That happens with a lot of researchers. Like, like there aren't a lot of them that were, were what they did in grad schools with what they do later on. Some do, most don't. And so it's, you know, grad school is really more about learning the tools that'll help you do the job you want as best as you possibly can, embedded in an environment that's nurturing, that's supportive, that's, that, that, that's looking after you and, letting you and letting you make mistakes in a comfortable environment. I think that's actually a good transition into one of the other questions we had. I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but we had a question um, asking about insights into mentoring or supervising students who are doing diverse but still related topics while pursuing their own research topics. Um, so kind of that diversifying and it might not be an exact match. Yeah. So one of the strategies with this question revolves around trying to figure out what's the main thing that drives your work. In the book, I call it your burning question, right? It's your North Star. It's the, it's the, it's the thing that guides your work, right? Uh, mine, here's, here's mine. Mine is, you know, why do people often perceive the same things in different ways, right? That's my main thing. It sounds like a social psychology question. I'm a clinical psychologist by training, but it sounds like something that a social psychologist does. I just happen to do it in clinical psychology because I see a lot of applied settings where the answer to that question matters. It matters for planning treatments, for figuring out which ones work, for figuring out who needs, who needs concerns. I'm usually asking a lot of people, not just in the client's life, and not just the client, but a lot of people in their lives, what's going on with them, how they're thinking, feeling, and behaving. And because the, the answers to the questions I'm asking are so different from those different people, I need to know why people see the same behaviors differently, right? Now, for me, what's helped is that I can ask, once I know my burning question, then I say to myself, well, what's a, where are great examples where that burning question happens? If I can pick out different instantiations, different places, different environments, and it's less about my question and more about those environments, then it's easier for me to draw students in, right? And so, because I don't, I don't expect them to care about my question, but I'd be, it'd be great if they were, if they liked, if they liked uh, doing work in anxiety. Anxiety is a place where, 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 where my question happens a lot because, because anxiety is tough to see and, and, and anxiety can change a lot from place to place. Uh, families, oh geez, uh, you know how often it is 
where we get like an, an adolescent who comes into our lab and we're like, well, well, you know, what brings about arguments in the, in the house? And, and they'll say, you know, homework and mom's like, huh? You know? <laughs> and, and so it's it, it, like, like that's a place where like the environment's the same and it's very easy to see place points of disagreement with, a, and, and, and both of those things, how the family functions, how anxious kids are, uh, are places where you don't have to care about my question, be really interested in those topics. All right. So, so it's, so it's a way for me to satisfy my curiosity and also open doors to other students whose curiosities are different than mine, but nonetheless converge in those, in those places. And that's a way to keep my work going and other people's work going, uh, at, a, at about the same pace. I think that's a fantastic point. I know in my personal experience in graduate school, I worked with a mentor who is also or is a pediatric psychologist, but her areas of interest were a little bit more, um, were different than mine. She looked at different uh, chronic health conditions, whereas one of my particular interests is in individuals with type 1 diabetes. But I was able to work with adolescents with type 1 diabetes and just look at other um, similar areas of interest that we had in common. So is that like self-management behaviors or how you're accessing mm-hmm. healthcare utilization, things like that. So we had some similar interests, but still being able to pursue the things that I was most passionate about. Yeah. Yeah. It's a win-win because then the, the, the advisor builds, keeps on building their career and the student starts building their independence, uh, you know, which is, which is, which is part of the, of the grad school experience. You're embedded that person's story, but you need to start figuring out how to weave a story of your own. And that can lead us to our next question. Um, so what advice would you give to yourself as a first year professor? <laughs> so a few, a few things. Um, learn how to tell stories. So read Houston Weber narrative as soon as you possibly can. Uh, uh, and essentially learn how to do key pieces of the work. Communicating is one. Finding time. Finding time to do the work. Um, Paul Sylvia's How to Write a Lot is about the best book on, on, on this kind of topic uh, uh, because it gives you concrete advice on how to, on how to uh, uh, build into your daily schedule the very kinds of things that do that you want to do, work on a grant, work on a paper, things like that. The, the tough and, – and here's, and here's one piece of advice that I got my first year that was really, really useful and, it's, and it relates to all these things. When you first start any of these jobs, no one knows how to do it right away. No one knows how to teach the first time they teach. No one knows the professor the first time the person that they're a professor. They learn it as they go along. And so as long as you normalize that for yourself, like uh, that, 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 uh, that this job looks like this for a reason and it looks like this for everyone, for everyone else, then it's time to sort of say to yourself, I have to teach myself the how-tos about these job, this job because I'm not going to take a class in it. It's not going to be a, a, a fed to me. I'm going to learn it on my own. Definitely taking notes on all of these topics. (laughs) Definitely. Um, So another question we got was how to know if you're a good fit for an internship, postdoc, or faculty position. I feel like you've touched on this a little bit already, but I'm wondering if you have other advice. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. So one of the ways, there are a bunch of different ways of doing this, Um, especially with like postdoc jobs or uh, you know, working with a faculty like in grad school, uh, it's a lot of it is, do I have the kinds of characteristics experiences that tend, 
to to uh, to be a parent among grad students in that in that lab or in that environment. Right. Not to say, <laughs> am I a carbon copy of somebody who's already there? It's it's among the things that I've done uh, before. Do I see a referent in that among among uh, uh, students? A lot of times, students might think to themselves, "Okay, I want to apply to a grad program, and it's and it's uh, somebody who does work in in, uh, in depression. Does that mean I I have to have worked in a lab that's done depression before that? Well, it depends. Some faculty do expect that kind of trajectory in a, in in a, in students they eventually admit. Some of them don't, uh, and sometimes. The, the ones who are open to taking students that don't necessarily have that same kind of background, you can, you can see in, in current and past students. And right, so what I, one of the things I usually suggest to, to, to students that they do is when you're thinking about prospective mentors, go and look at their past students. What kind, do, do you see the same kinds of training background and characteristics in them over and over and over again? Well, that tells you signal that maybe, that, that maybe that, that's something that's leading through, but that doesn't characterize all, all, uh, all, all faculty. Now with, with later on in your career, when it's time to think, well, you know, is this position at this at this institution the right one for me? Then it becomes a little different. So in some in some environments, uh, being different is actually a really good thing. Uh, you know, so like standard arts and sciences departments, uh, you know, where there where there aren't a lot of of uh, of lines for faculty, they're going to try to maximize uh, the, uh, the the benefit of that line. Not just somebody who studies something differently than everybody else, but also somebody who has who has the potential of talking with other people in, the, in that department and collaborating with them, who share very different interests themselves, like a, almost like a like a like a cost effectively more bang for your buck kind of uh, kind of thing. Great, thank you. And then this question, I think, kind of weaves a couple of these components in that you've talked about. So you know, just like you're talking about, kind of that fit and the mentorship relationship with supervisees, um, but the listener asked. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how, when you should start trying to demonstrate your independence. How important is that? And then what are some possible milestones to know that you're on different tracks? So as you go from pre-doctoral to post-doctoral and then to early faculty. You know, obviously the answer to this question is going to be a little different depending on your, on your stage. And so at the pre-doctoral level, it's not terribly important that you're carving out an identity for yourself right away. You're just starting to get to learn how to use the tools uh, to uh, to produce scholarly work uh, and and, uh, and to prepare yourself for for uh, for your next steps. As you get over into the postdoctoral and faculty uh, faculty uh, uh, periods, that's where independence matters a great deal. Uh, but but it's it's different than you might expect. So when you get to the faculty level. You've already, you know, demonstrated to at least a handful of, of individuals, the committee that hired you, things like that, that you can do this, that you can probably do this work on your own. But there isn't <laughs> solid evidence of that, that that's the case. And so at, at that stage, it's less about hitting home runs. It's less about that groundbreaking finding uh, that launches that that launches your your, your lab or your, or your or your brand or you know whatever your identity is, and more about okay. Um, uh, you know, here's some evidence, exhibit A, exhibit B, exhibit C, exhibit D, that I can do this without my mentors. All right. So let's get that out of the way. <laughs> and, and then, and, and once you're able to demonstrate that independence, then you can start taking more risks. Uh, at the postdoctoral stage, it's, it, it's kind of like, um, probably taking this position on because 
I, I have an idea about what I want to do later on, but I want a few more tools under my tool belt to then make me more competitive. Um, you know, you want to demonstrate some independence from your, from your pre-doctoral advisor, but it's okay being in that, in that environment and, and, uh, and, and doing some of the same things the mentor does because you're just trying to demonstrate. This is a new thing that I'm trying to learn and here, here's some evidence that I've acquired it. Uh, and, and by doing that, usually a postdoctoral mentor is sufficiently removed in interests and areas of expertise as the pre-doctoral. So by, so by focusing your attention on trying to learn those tools and become uh, proficient in them, you're, you're usually, uh, um, uh, you know, advancing your, your, your work in such a way that you're distinguishing yourself from everyone who's been involved so far. Well, thank you, Dr. De Los Reyes. I think something we really appreciate, not only about what you've talked about today, but just in general about your book, is that you can apply it to these different stages of you know, early career development. So there are some things that you can take away if you're at the graduate school level or even just applying for graduate school. And there are things you can take away for you know those of us that are in our early career development stage. And so um, I think that's really great and something that we really appreciate and hopefully our listeners will benefit for as well. Now, we have some specific questions related to research and a research career for Dr. De Los Reyes. So the first listener question um, in this area is, how important is it to have some kind of lab or research experience when preparing for grad school? Do schools really prefer that undergrads have publishing experience? Ah, great. A two-part question. (laughs) So when it comes to lab and research experience, it's important to get a sense of what the norms are in the in the discipline where you plan to uh, submit your application so uh, for instance in clinical psychology uh, it's quite common for programs to uh, include admissions offers that remit your tuition and also give you a stipend so you don't have to work uh, outside of your your uh, your grad school uh, training and so in those circumstances the number of people that get admitted every year into those programs is on the lower side. Uh, and so in those circumstances, it's usually normal to see applicants in the pool that have, uh, you know, one or more years of post-baccalaureate research experience. After you get your BA, you spend a few years in a lab. Uh, and, and in those places, yes, it, it, uh, it's important to have lab and research experience so that your application be competitive with everybody else's. Uh, but that, that might not be true of all disciplines. So, you know, what I would suggest is among the mentors that you plan to apply with, uh, apply to work with, take a look at what their students were doing like before grad school. How much did they do beforehand? How many years did they have? Did they have any? Were much of the research experiences re- relegated to the work that they were doing in undergrad? And just get a sense of what's normal acro- across those, those mentors because your application might not be identical to other uh, students that might have applied to work with that, with that mentor or the mentors on your list. Uh, but suffice to say that, that, that getting a sense of what the, what the norms are can help a great deal to inform next steps. Uh, and in terms of publishing, so this is another thing that, that's, that's, uh, that consider the, 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 uh, the norms, because you don't want to get, I, I, you don't want to give people the impression that, that, that you have to have, you know, X, Y, or Z things on your record in order in order to get into graduate school that might be true for some for some students some students the publishing the publishing experience gets them over the the finish line and, and they get the offer over to everybody else's but but make no mistake this is a really uh, uh it's quite normative in in all uh disciplines to see graduate students uh that vary considerably in their backgrounds for some their 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 big thing was 
Uh, I had several years of research experience with a great lab that does things and mm-hmm. and, uh, and produces research that looks a whole lot like like the this uh, this particular program I'm applying to. For others, it was I had this great set of publishing experience, and when I walk in, I can just hit the ground running uh, and just and just start producing work right away. It just it depends on on what the mentor is looking for and what the applicant can can provide. I think that's a great, um, great recommendations there. And I think you kind of hit the nail on the head with it depends, right? Because there's always going to be variability. So I really like kind of looking into what other people who are interested in similar positions have done. I know personally, if this helps set anyone's mind at ease, I was not published before graduate school, um, but I had done some research in undergrad. And then I did take some time off in between grad school um, to work and do some volunteer work in a lab. So I definitely have seen, you know, variable experiences. All right. So our second question, um, this one is a little broader, but only a (laughs) one-parter. So what tips or tricks do you have for research goal setting and tracking progress towards your research goals? Great question. (laughs) So when you're thinking about reaching goals in research, it's important to to put them in separate buckets. There's the long-term goals, you know, so have a whiteboard or some other kind of thing that, that, that you can keep in front of you every day where you can always go back and say six months out, what do I, what do I want to have done by that time? Right. And then break those out. Maybe it's, I want, I just defended my master's thesis and I want to submit this paper publication or, uh, you know, I'm, I, I know that I have to propose my dissertation by, by, uh, by X month. That's, I want to be able to be in a space where I have about a month or two before that defense date of a full draft that I can keep on revising, uh, you know, b- before all that. Those are the long-term goals. Those are not good goals for day to day because, you know, you, uh, you know, probably all of us have sat in front of our computer and we said to ourselves, gotta write that paper. <laughs> And then what happens? And then you and then you write like a little word or two, and then yeah. you just stop. Yeah. So so every one of those every one of those long term goals can be broken down into like a hundred different little mini goals, and it's the mini goals that are short term. Those are the day to day things you go in there and say and say to yourself, "I'm writing a couple hundred words today," and when I hit uh, and when I hit two hundred, I stop, and then it was, uh, that that kind of thing for the next day. You know, so, so it's important to sort of take those larger goals, the things you want to accomplish within, within a few months and break them down to things, into manageable things that you can get done within the set period of time where you, uh, where you write and track progress. Now, in terms of tracking progress, the, the big thing there is find an indicator, find a number that you can hang your hat on and say, you know, this is what I, this is the, the marker I want to hit today and tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. Because the, because all of these projects are paper cuts. It's mm-hmm. all about just uh, you know you know being able to, to to sit down and none of us write these papers in a day. None of us write these like, write these books in a week. This these <laughs> things take a long time. Yes. And so and so breaking things the, the things down, I think, is the most effective way to get from those short term goals to the long term goal and and being able to cross the long term thing off your list. That's great advice. I know Dr. Fran and I are both kind of um, shifting to have greater emphasis on research this upcoming year. So I know the like visual approach for like the longer term goals is something I'm starting to try. Yeah, it's definitely some really great tips. I like how you talked about the short term versus long term goals, but then also thinking about how to visualize those. I heard you mention having like a whiteboard. I know a lot of people like sticky notes or planners. I do a lot of like (laughs) 
Excel documents or spreadsheets or, you know, just finding whatever works for you for organizing. Yeah, I, I keep a I keep a whiteboard in my office and the student, my students have gravitated uh, to this thing a great deal because what I do is I'll write down everybody's projects and group them out. Like, here's my here's the, here's the list for the, the students, the list for myself, the list for my collaborators, right? Things like that. And my students have gotten a real big kick once they click submit and they send it out and they're like, Andy, can, can I can I cross mine off? Can I do can I actually go to the market and do it myself? And it's like, yes, you, of course you can. So, so it, it winds up being a nice little sort of thing you tuck away being like, man, I can't wait for this done because then I can cross it off the list. That's <laughs> awesome. That's how I feel every time I can update something on my CV from like submitted or in press. I'm like, it's so satisfying to go and change that. <laughs> yes. All right. So one last question for today. Um, I believe this is another two-parter. Uh, so we've got, <laughs> what is your biggest advice for writing a winning grant? And follow up, I'd love to hear your advice on how to decide when a question is ripe and significant to support a grant, small or large. Oh, the first one is so, so, so important. So to write a winning grant, you have to be willing to do two things. Either pursue the idea to the bitter end <laughs> and submit it to 10 or 15 or 20 different places until somebody gives up and says yes to you and gives you your money. Or, or, uh, and I think this is true regardless of which one you, do, you go, make sure to pay very careful attention to the funding priorities of the agency or the or the, the the funny organization that you're submitting the application to it is really really important nothing can is, is more important than that because even if you try to push an idea and try as hard as you can for as long as you can that there's no guarantee that it's eventually going to get funded at some point you're going to have to probably um uh compromise a little bit to give the funder what they're looking for but at the same time keep some of it Mm-hmm. Uh, to keep you excited because the last thing you want to do the worst thing the the the, the worst uh, the thing that's worse than getting your grant rejected is getting a grant you don't want to do funded that is the <laughs> worst that is because that's years of your life where you're like oh no but just for money really just for money it's not a good life it's mm-hmm. not a good life my opinion um and then when it comes to uh thinking about when a question is is a is a, is ready to submit a grant. It really depends. Some funding agencies, some funding mechanisms are all about. We want to see big ideas. We want to see high risk, high reward. Uh, you know, uh, we're, we're ready when you are. Right? And sometimes those ideas need a little bit of pilot data, need a little bit of support. Uh, but but sometimes if it's a good if it's good enough, and, a, and if, an agency's telling you we want to take risks. You might not need that much to get there. Uh, on the flip side of things, sometimes the large grants, sometimes those those, uh, those really big grants, people want a lot of certainty. The agencies want a lot of certainty that what you're planning on proposing to do is going to pan out. Uh, and and so and sometimes it goes so far as to say, you know that that this 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 idea needs this this X level support or otherwise. Don't, I mean, try try for a lower mechanism, or or, or or come back to us for the larger grant when you've already built up enough from the smaller stuff. I think that's really great advice, and I appreciate you sharing all that. I feel like grants are one of those things that are talked a lot about, but then until you actually get into the grant application writing process, you don't really know how to apply what you've learned until you're actually in it. So I really appreciate you sharing some of those tips and things to think about. 
I definitely think it's like a constant learning process, you know, depending on the grant that you're working on, the project that you're working on and going through that for sure. So I, I find that to be very helpful. It's normal. And then just everyone should just keep in mind that it's normal to be told no a lot. I didn't get my first grant, my first grant from an external funding agency. I didn't get it for seven years after I started as a professor, seven years. And, 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 and even coming up to now, I really only have gotten like two more after that. The first one I got was in 2015. Then I got another one in 2018. Then I got, I got a really tiny one this year. Uh, and if you look at my, my batting average, it's not even like how much I weigh. It's really, really, it's really, really, really low. It's bad. It's bad. Uh, and that, and that part doesn't keep you away from doing it. I mean, there's a reason why on people CVs, you can usually count the number of big grants they have on one hand because it takes years to get each one of those. And then each one of them lasts a few years. Mm -hmm. So this is part of it. That's true. And I feel like it all, like you're discussing kind of builds, right? You have to kind of demonstrate like at a certain level to then build up to higher levels of those grant mechanisms. And you're right, they can, it just takes years and years. So that's a very helpful way to think about it. And look, for what it's worth, the failure part like really stinks. It's something that all (laughs) of us have to get used to, but boy, when they tell you yes, it's like the best slice of pizza you've ever had. Like, num, 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 num. it's like nobody can take it away from you. It's your pizza, and you can and only well, except that the pizza lasts several years. It's awesome. It's totally awesome. You better like pizza. Just kidding. I think that's such a good point and something that you know it's always hard when you're faced with failure or rejection. But knowing that it's a normal process and that everyone goes through it at least helps you feel like you're not alone or it's not personal or it's not just you. But this is part of the process, and you have to strike out many times before you get that amazing slice of pizza at the end of the road. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Well, that is it for our mini sesh today. Thank you so much, Dr. Delos Reyes, for joining us. We really appreciate all of your answers to these great questions and just all of the recommendations, tips, and advice that you've been able to provide to us and our listeners. Oh, happy to be here. This was a whole lot of fun. Thank you so much for your time. (laughs) Thank you. So don't forget to check out our website and follow us on social media. Stay tuned for future opportunities to submit questions to have answered by us or other experts. We'd also love to hear what questions you have about psychology and what movies or TV shows you'd want us to put on our couch and break down next. As always, please subscribe, rate, and review. Time's up. See you next session. We'd like to thank our producer, Brandon, creative director, Eric, and webmaster, Don. 